0: Previously on Ted Zo Podcasts. You're so ambitious, aren't you? You know what you'd like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes. You are know, like a rube, a well scrubbed, hustling rube with a little taste, good nutrition has given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor white trash, are you, aged Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately is shed pure West Virginia. What did your daddy do? Was he a coal miner? Does he stink of the lamb? Oh how quickly the boys found you all those sticky tedious fumblings in the back seats of cars. Or well, you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere. Getting all the way to the FBI time release blood packs you're thinking of this place all wrong as if I had the money back in a safe the money's not here the money's in Joe's house or next to yours and and the Kennedy house and Mrs. Macklin's house and a hundred others You want to start? Uh, yes, let's start. Go. <laughs> uh, hello. <laughs> this is episode 71 of the world famous Tetch Orgy podcast. I'm Nick Pope and I used to work for MI5 and I podcast with...
1: Every time. Every time, Darren, this takes me by surprise. Uh, oh, sorry, Nick. Okay. Um, I am... Hmm. Boris Johnson today.
0: Oh, no. Why do you always choose the worst people <laughs> in the world? <clears throat> Not that Nick Pope is the best person in the world. On the contrary. So, um. well, let's just launch into it. So, now, John, do you like pterosaurs?
1: Pterosaur, right, I guess. i got nothing to get them. What?
0: What? What would you say if... Uh, Yang et al. in uh, Nature Ecology and Evolution published a paper with the title "Pterosaur integumentary structures with complex feather-like Branches. What? Yeah, because funnily enough, uh, Yang et al., including Maria McNamara, Michael Pittman, Xing uh, Xingzhu or Zhu Xing, Michael Benton, and others, they published this paper what? this year. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, I believe it's Daohogu kind of middle Jurassic aneuronathids, two aneuronathids specimens. Aneuronathids, for those of you who don't know, pterosaurs are uh, peculiar, short-faced, broad-headed, short-tailed, moderately long-winged um, pterosaurs that are outside of Pterodactyloidea, the large, short-tailed group of pterosaurs that includes Asdarchids and Pteranodontids and, and Kin. Um, and uh, and the, the big deal about this paper is they we obviously we've known for decades that pterosaurs had uh, uh, hair-like integumentary structures, which have become known as picno fibers. But you're still okay if you want to call them hairs or hair-like structures or hairs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they report four different kinds of uh, picno fibers on these anurinated specimens. There's uh, there's like simple kind of hair like filaments with no complexity that's type 1 structures, there's type 2 structures which are like multiple strands but they're clustered together and share the same base, there's The third structure, which is like a long, uh, thin, like whisker-type structure that has sort of branching filaments halfway, partway along its length, like approximately halfway along its length. And then there's fourth kinds, which are sort of like down feathers, where from a single base there's like multiple fibres that radiate. And these structures... Uh, come belong to different parts of the body. The simple hair-like structures are all over the place. The uh, the, the branch, the, the the parallel fiber structures that share a single base are, are on the forelimbs, I think. The long structures with the short filaments branching like halfway along their length are are around the edge of the jaws, and the uh, down-like complex structures are on the wing membranes. So this is good evidence for uh, structural complexity in pterosaur fibres on a neuronated pterosaurs. Presumably, these kind, this, this sort of thing was, you know, well, presumably fairly widespread in pterosaurs, and we've only just discovered it due to uh, good preservation of this one group of pterosaurs in particular. Um, and the structures, the complex structures, are very similar to the branching structures present in theropod dinosaurs. So the authors say that this is evidence for, like, shared, for like homology of these pterosaur structures with the branching complex structures of theropods. So they use it to do two things. First of all, the structures in theropods, everyone agrees which they're, they're feathers. They're homologous with, with modern feathers. So they, the Yang et al, say that these structures on pterosaurs should also be called feathers. They are homologous with theropod mm. feathers. That's one thing. And the second thing, they also say that, well, if they're homologous, then obviously this is evidence that complex branching feathers are ancestral for Ornithodira, the pterosaur plus dinosaur clade. So, therefore, the common ancestor of both groups was a fuzzy beast and that um, all Ornithodiran lineages descend from ancestors that had, these, that had these structures. So, that's the basic gist of it. Yes. Um, really interesting stuff. What do you think? Um,
1: Rumours about this sort of thing have been going around for a while and also, I believe, um, a pterosaur described by Circus, which I've forgotten the name of, was was also described as having branching um, structures. Uh, People didn't pay that much attention, I guess, because in some ways... uh, it wasn't contextualized properly. The specimen's a bit in limbo, isn't it? And, um, yeah, yeah, some legality So, yeah, issues. so I think we kind of knew this already, um, which is interesting. Like, what there's two aspects to this: there's the, um, why are they like that? Like, what's the actual point of these structures? Why? Are their function, you know, why why have different sorts of um, things? What what are they? What are they providing over? Um, simple, single-strand hairs, and yeah, is it is it? Are they ancestral to the entirety of Ornithodira? Um, which one do you want to tackle first? I I think they're both interesting topics.
0: Uh, tackle first, I mean I'm not totally sure I want to have like an in-depth discussion about it but um, I should have also mentioned they have melanosomes, so they've got evidence for the coloration on the pygno fibres um, they do cite Yang et al, do cite the Cherkas and G paper published in 2002, but they don't mention pterorhynchus by name, and I think this is for the reasons you stated, it's sort of like It's like people haven't really known whether to accept it. And if they had accepted it, then we would have already had this idea out there that the complex branching structures are present in pterosaurs. What does it mean for Ornithian as a whole? Um, I I don't know which way to go on this, as goes whether I fully agree with them, because as we've discussed before in the context of – I forget what we were talking about – probably Ornithischian structures, it's like – uh, yeah, I can buy that these things are ancestral, and as, and as you've said, that's been a fairly common idea in the ARCs or research community, but I can also quite easily buy the idea that these are convergent, and I would like to see their distribution confirmed in lots more pterosaurs.
1: Yeah, would more pterosaurs help? I think it needs... I think pterosaurs suffer... It's the pterosaur gap, right? It's that lacking these um, intermediate forms. If we could get an intermediate form um, that was... <laughs> A lot less (laughs) pterosaur-like.
0: Yeah, so you want a psilosaurid or a marasuchus-type animal with complex with a well with with nice integument in the first place, which we don't have. Then integumentary fibres and then branching. I think that's what we need because I think we're
1: looking at fairly derived animals, no matter where we're looking. Um, And just it feels it just feels like there's too many steps involved um, to to say one way or the other. And I think we could keep piling on the evidence yeah. at the at the ends, but I don't think that's solving the central problem and I think we need something yeah, some sort of Triassic um, <clears throat> intermediate ornithodiran that has something like this. But yeah. I also think that we so need something there, a, as I say, actually a basal pterosaur. I think we just need something that is a bit more intermediate yeah. there.
0: <clears throat> what do you think about calling these structures feathers?
1: Ah, uh, yeah. I mean... <laughs> yeah.
0: Obviously... I can't help but be uncomfortable with that, and I'm sort of not sure why.
1: Obviously, the term feather goes back before we knew about homology, right? People were calling things feathered. It's not... Mm. It's an ordinary word. Would an ordinary person call mm. these feathers? I don't know. Well, I don't they know. They probably wouldn't, actually, because... No, they're call them so. bristles or something, you know. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't think we need to call them feathers.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of. I don't, I don't want to seem annoyingly conservative on this, but I can't help but be annoyingly conservative on this, because I'm thinking like, think of, imagine if we only knew about kiwis, or only knew about nightjar mm. bristles, and didn't know about complex veined true aerodynamic feathers would we call kiwi hair-like feathers and nightjar bristles would we call those feathers no i don't think we would i think we would only do that once we knew that they were homologous with complex aerodynamic feathers and occur on the same sorts of animals and are a variant of like weird modified versions of complex feathers which seems to be the case so i don't know if you've got a group of animals as you have with some of the uh this is going to start talking about non-bird theropods, but it's a bit of a mess there because we're not certain what the exact anatomy of some of the structures is <laughs> like. But if you're dealing with a group of animals where it doesn't seem that they that they had anything that looks like a veined feather, as in with a central calamus and you know two veins on either side, you don't have anything like that. <sighs> I just, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, it also th- their argument, Yang et al.'s argument for calling them feathers is predominantly based on homology. Their claim of homology, which, according to their argument, is valid. That, that, that's what they're supporting. They're saying, "Haha, they yeah. are homologous." But you know, a lot. Everyone I've spoken to so far is, or well, nearly everyone I've spoken to so far is, um. Uh, sceptical about this it's like well you basically wait and see we're not sure on this one yeah hold your horses and like maybe but not definitely and that seems to be oh, i don't know i really, I really yeah, yeah um, I, I don't.
1: and but who says we have to extend the term feather all the way to the base right even if we were being like hyper homologists about it <laughs> yeah, again which i don't think we should be <clears throat> but even if we were <clears throat> maybe that term doesn't go all the way to the base of the first sort of thing that stuck out right <laughs> yeah um, yeah so yeah i don't know i don't think we need to call them feathers i don't think most people would okay, call them so, feathers yeah. if they saw them they'd probably call them hair or bristles or something and therefore
0: okay so i agree with you on that i'm going to i'm going to stick with pignoise fibers i'm going to call them complex integument structures yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, or let's what's the acronym for that complex oh dear my pen come on come on come on complex integument. Yes. CIS is CIS. i'm sure that will go for something else okay uh interesting that they have these aneurinateds uh, they refer to this animal in the paper as the yan lao uh, yan lao they don't say what taxon it is um, so is it a new taxon or is it referable to Yeholopterus or something, I don't know but um, this is another new and presumably hot on the heels of Vesperoterilus lamadongensis, Lamadongensis published by Jin Chang Lu et al. in the New Perspectives on Pterosaur Paleobiology volume, which I have with me right here now, am I right in thinking that first of all, Jin Liu am I right in thinking that Jin Lu, uh died in 2018? Uh, yeah. yeah. So that's a, okay, that's 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 some sad news. Jin Lu, uh published a, a bunch of stuff on pterosaurs, lots of interesting stuff. Anyway, so this uh, is a paper in the New Perspective on Pterosaur volume edited by David Hone, Mark Witten <laughs> and <laughs> Dave Martill. GL Sock. Do you have this? You don't have this volume? I'm going to be reviewing it on Tet Uh, uh, eh, eh, It's It's (laughs) alright. It's alright. I quite like it. It's a collection of papers presented at the 2015 Pterosaur meeting held at the University of Portsmouth, which I was at. I don't know if you were. Were you there? Portsmouth. Yeah, you were there. Yeah, You're so Mm. memorable. Um, (laughs) But, Okay. Let me say this, and I'm going to repeat stuff I'm going to say in my review anyway. First of all, new perspectives? Mm. No, no. There's no new perspectives on this. It's a collection of papers, not new perspectives. Okay, don't call your volume that. New perspectives implies that we've got a new way of looking at this unique of this problem. You know, Brian, you've never thought of it this way before, but we're coming in this way before. We're using, you know, we're using this brand new technology or. You've thought about it like this, but what if they were like this? And the paper's just not – the book is just not that. It's just papers on here's a new bit of pterosaur. Here's another new bit of pterosaur. Here's a new analysis of pterosaurs. Here's some pterosaur bones. Um, So that is a trivial observation but maybe a relevant one because I notice people love giving papers and books the title New Perspectives on dot, dot, dot. As if it was like, what old perspectives Are you gonna call it old perspectives on yeah.
1: Well, yeah. On
0: my, <laughs> you
1: could you can just call it contemporary perspectives.
0: <laughs> contemporary perspectives. Uh, and terilis, this, uh this new this newer neuronated, it's a lioning one, so it's younger than the yan uh, j j, j- Jan, Jan Liao, uh, specimens we were just talking about. Um so it's this is early Cretaceous. And um Vesperoterilus uh, is interesting because in the foot, the authors contend that it has a reversed first toe. Now, what they mean by that is that the the claw, the uh, the the phalanx, the ungual phalanx, is f- is is opposing the others. It's like facing the other way. So they say this is a uh, a climbing adaptation. So this is evidence for arboreal habits in anurans. And I don't know, maybe it is. It's not a ridiculous Uh idea. Um, And the paper includes this. Uh, Let me just make sure I can see what you're seeing, if that follows. Oh, Skype, why are you like this? No, no Skype. Skype is is saying, do we want to share screens? Do you want to see my screen? No, no, go away. Anyway, see that artwork? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, a really interesting colour artwork by Zhao Chuang. Uh, kind of looks a f- demonic <laughs> little beast. Uh, so there you go. A neuronated pterosaurs. And New Perspectives on Pterosaur Biology, a book that if, you, if you're interested in pterosaurs, you've got to get. By the way, this is the News from the World of News section. So. Can you start? I'll it put the jingle in, in now. Jingle. <laughs> news for the world of news. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and jingle. <laughs> okay. Okay. Second, I want to talk about a couple of things. The Second thing I'll talk about is uh, uh briefly, briefly. Keep your eyes on the clock. Two minute rule. Um. Esther Diaz-Berenguer, which I'm no doubt pronouncing incorrectly, and a set of other authors in Nature Scientific Reports, first adequately known quadrupedal sirenian from Eurasia. It's an Eocene sirenian, um, so a stem oh. sea cow, from the, uh, from the Latutian, which is part of the Eocene. So, something like approximately 30, oh, ish is million years or after old. the Spankian. It's well after the Spankian. <laughs> okay. It's way more recent than the Spankian. Because, as you'll know, John, the Cenozoic is Danian, Phoenician, Oppression, Latutian, Bartonian, Pribonian, Repellian, Chattian, Aquitanian, Bertigalian, Laravale, Langian, Cerevalian, Tortonian, Maastrichtian, Zangian, Placensian, Pliocene, Pleistocene, Holocene. I screwed up at the end there. No no spanky um, <clears throat> and this uh, this animal is called Sobra Sobraba Sobraba siren. Sobra oh, I can't pronounce <laughs> I can't pronounce anything. Sobra it's named <laughs> after named after a region of A place in Spain, northeastern Spain, called which might be pronounced Sobrabe. So it's Sobrabe siren. Yep. Cardielli, and it's, it's represented by at least six specimens, really good material, like complete skull and uh, complete skulls and like lo- lots of post cranial, lots of material of this animal. The reason I'm talking about it is that it's a quadrupedal sirenian, which isn't news if you know anything about the fossil record of sea cows uh, and stem sea cows, sirenians. Uh, we've known of an animal called Siren from the uh, Caribbean, which was described by Daryl Domning way back in two thousand one. So that's so, so quadrupedal sirenians are not news, but so Siren, a quadrupedal sirenian with like you know good pelvis, good hind limb material, etc., is interesting to me because it's in a substantially more crownward position than Piso Siren. So so, Brabus, so Siren is fairly close to the clade that includes dugongs and manatees, and although it's like uh, you know, forty-ish, forty-four-ish million years up from the Latutian It's um, so it's old. It's pretty close to crown Cyrenians mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. So it indicates that quadrupedality and dis- and well-formed hind limbs were retained in Sirenians uh, until uh, air quotes pretty late uh, in Sirenian evolution. So that's that's why it's interesting. So, uh, and if you know Sirenians, uh, that will be a big deal uh, to you. So it's more crown. Some sort of but, land sorry. cow is what you're saying. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Well, also all of these quadrupedal stem Sirenians, Piso Siren, the Prorastomids, the protosirenids Sireniids, so Eothyroides, and Kin. Uh, presumably, they were all still like you know amphibious uh, and not fully aquatic, as are. Crown Cyrenians. So, are we looking at something a bit like a hippo? Not a million miles away from that sort of thing, but obviously not hippo like at all in, in ecology or you know, f- form. But, but in terms of like degree of, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, 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 because no. hippos, hippos are actually way more terrestrial. Because hippos have got much longer limbs, and hippos can run yeah. around on the land. These animals don't like they could run around; they look like they could sort of lounge okay. in the shallows and haul up on beaches and stuff. So, no, more like um, sea lions, but also sea lions are also super agile on land. So that's again an but analogy. The, but we work. don't so know they weren't stop.
1: fairly agile on land, do we? Because no one's observed them. Uh, really. They don't work. <laughs> Would you predict that, that from? Okay, a... yeah. Uh, from a sea lion I don't know a skeleton I don't I, don't I don't think know. you would necessarily yeah.
0: sea lions and fur seals are really fast on land and really good at climbing rocks and stuff compared to say walruses and and, and seals so that's that's a good point I'm not sure that we would know that if we knew them as fossils I kind of think I kind of think we would know that they had terrestrial abilities from the
1: what, yeah maybe um, not <clears throat> given if we didn't have something similar right I don't know whether we would.
0: Well, uh, well, that's an interesting discussion that I've had many times over um sort of connected to what we think about plesiosaur's because my contention is that even if all pinnipeds were extinct, there's a whole bunch of features in their uh, forelimbs in particular that show they were using their limbs terrestrially. The they've got like uh, adaptations in the elbow and wrist in particular which I think show that these animals are moving on land, and they wouldn't. These, these are structures that you don't. These are features you don't need just for swimming. If you were just but swimming, you, you wouldn't.
1: Have a that fall... People think, oh well, yeah, but that's just got to do with this crazy swimming style that I think they had. Because there's always some alternative hypothesis about any anatomical feature. I think we would predict something like it, but I, I don't know. I don't know.
0: You can never tell. You can never tell, but in an alternative universe, who knows what options people would go with, but no, I, I think there are things that you can state are terrestrial adaptations in, in pinnipeds. which yeah, that's a cheat, because you could say, yeah, I know that, but but I'm saying that, so 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 using that logic, I would say that, like, these quadrupedal sirenians, they've got terrestrial adaptations, desmostylians have got terrestrial adaptations, but plesiosaurs do not, and uh, I'm coming at this this discussion from a point of view where I've been in debates with people who contend that pletisoles could move on land, and I was like, no, why do you think that? They don't have any of the adaptations that pinnipeds or desmostylions do, and I think desmostylians and pinnipeds could move on land because they've got these adaptations, so <clears throat> this isn't the uh, fossil marine mammal um, podcast, but uh, maybe it Well, could it is be. at least partly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and is this maybe the last thing I want to talk about? in nope, the news No, it's not me. the last thing. Okay. Okay. Michael Piers and colleagues in Northwestern Naturalist, that well-known uh, journal, scavenging by snowshoe hares in Yukon, Canada. So this paper has gotten quite a lot of press because people found it pretty interesting. Snowshoe hares, Lepus americanus, uh, a well-studied uh, keystone herbivore of boreal forests, has... Okay. Now, first of all, first thing to say is the observation... Uh, the the, the sh- talking about snowshoe hares eating carrion, which includes the carcasses of birds and of other hares, um, is not novel. Yeah. We've, we've known for decades that um, snowshoe hares and other lagomorphs, including cottontails and you know, other species, will do this as well. So this is this is not novel, but this study is the first quantitative study where they went to some trouble to you know record lots of you know with um, you know uh, what do you call them you know cameras that are out in the hidden cameras out, the motion motion mm-hmm. triggered cameras yeah they um they collected as much information as they could and they found that about 12% of the carcasses that they, that they were filming were exploited by snowshoe hares which you know that's you know it, it shows that it's not a one off shows that it's not super rare. it shows that it's a a strategy that's I don't know if you would regard 12.4% as statistically significant I don't know but it shows that it's a, a regular behaviour uh, particularly during the winter yeah for um well yeah so I that's, think that, that's 20 yeah. carcasses yeah 160 carcasses they were filming and 20 of them yeah. were nibbled on by yeah, snowshoe hares that is uh, what you'd call yeah it shows that it's a
1: regular behaviour that they engage yeah in. Without yeah. knowing the density of um, the, I mean, I don't. This might be covered in the paper. But without knowing the density, how many would you expect them to get at? Right? If each individual exactly. one was yeah, doing this all yeah. the time, would they be expected mm-hmm. to um, scavenge more than that, or is that about how many you'd expect them to get to? I don't know.
0: I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So yeah. I think I think it, it basically shows that it's a, it's like an ecologically significant. Uh, behavior on the part of the hares and also in terms of which animals are utilizing carcasses the list should include because you know there's i'm sure there's going to be loads of carcasses that don't get exploited at all and even if you're talking about you know i don't know wolves or lynxes or whatever chewing on carcasses off the top of my head i don't know but i would say that's it's not going to be like 90 of carcasses it's going to be like i don't know uh Half of carcasses or 30 or 40 percent of carcasses right so so in the list of animals that exploit carcasses you would now have to include snowshoe hares so uh which is interesting and like i said not not a brand new discovery just in itself uh, animal livery, exploitation of carcasses by lagomorphs is already documented; has been known about since at least the 1920s, or documented in the literature since the 1920s.
1: Yeah, um, but what is? I guess that does. The more we talk about it, that does seem fairly significant. I wonder if it starts to affect their morphology at all. Like that seems to be like where yeah. you might be pushing. You might actually be adapting to do this.
0: Mm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so in a future world where there are less lynxes and uh, wolves and whatnot, giant scavenger <laughs> bear bones. And
1: you know what? If you're scavenging, <laughs> you might as well start biting living things, right?
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Predatory, predatory yeah. wabbits. Well, this doesn't
1: seem <clears throat> that far off. Um, yeah. yeah, So, I don't know. but even as it is, it seems like it might be something that they start to adapt their dentition to, right? you might even be able mm. to see you like they might look different if they didn't do this
0: good point yeah. so there's some spec bio fodder for 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 you and final i mean there's a million things that could be included within news from the world of news obviously there are always so many things and we can only cover a handful of them especially with it being months and months and months since the last time we recorded but now what would you say if there was if someone found a new kind of animal in the modern world, like a living animal, and it was a large, like terrestrial mammal? What do you think would be the most surprising? Well, you know, them? in my wildest dreams,
1: make- if I was really, really, really excited, obviously, I mean, yeah. you know, there's Bigfoot people; they're crazy, <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, all those sea monsters; they're crazy. Uh, did you say terrestrial? But yeah, in my r- yeah. wildest dreams, it would be a tapir that looks almost identical to another living tapir.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> right, you won't believe this because uh, is it? Would you believe it? But um, uh, last year on the blog called Tetrapod Zoology, currently hosted at tetzoo.com, dot uh, com, that Darren Nash guy wrote an article on. All of the basically summarizing all of the arguments put forward so far on the purported existence of a new kind of tape called Tabris Cabamani, named by Mario Coswallatow in 2013, um, discovered uh, widespread locations in Amazonian South America, and probably discovered initially by Teddy Roosevelt after he shot one and kept in the, the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And uh, it's like, As is the case with lots of these um, interesting claims pertaining to animals of all kinds, you don't just get a paper that announces a a controversial thing and then it just sits there and, oh, I wonder whatever happened to that. No one ever studied it. No, it turns out that, you know, like within a year there have been four or five analyses. And uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but there's an article called Whatever Happened to the Kabamani Tapir? And it discusses all of the cases, all of the, it discusses all of the discussions about this tapir, showing like what happened to it, and the general feeling is that it's part of Tapirus terrestris. Uh, and uh, although you could make a case for Tapirus terrestris, the so-called lowland or Brazilian tapir, you could make a case for that being a species complex, in which case it needs to be split into like two or three, in which case then you would recognise Capomani as a distinct species, but most people are not doing that, they are sticking with... Uh, uh, the traditional kind of lumpy taxonomy. So there you <laughs> go, the Capomani Tapir. And also, there's this claim that it's the same as the dwarf black Tapir, reported by Mark von Roosemann. And I've written about his stuff a few times on Tetrapodology well, you- as well. Done. So now to the next section of the show. And you need a jingle for this. And you've already got one. And it goes like this <clears throat> News from, from the world uh, of Darren and John. John. <laughs> Using my porcelain pekingese <laughs> dog. So, any news from the world of John? Ah, uh, probably, but I've forgotten it all. Excellent, excellent, good story, oh, good yes. podcasting there. Uh, did we have we discussed on the podcast what happened at Tetsucon? We have 2018? not we haven't done
1: one since T- Tetsucon 2018.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so lazy. TetsuCon, of course, being the Tetsu Universe event of the year. TetsuCon 2018, for those of you who weren't there, hi to everyone who was. Hope you had a good time. Tell your friends, come again. Um, It was the biggest TetsuCon so far, the most successful. It really was, from my entirely uh, selfish perspective, the turning point in terms of like how it feels and the length and oh my god the organization has a lot of work involved but in a words i think it's pretty good it was not a disaster
1: <laughs> it was not um, a disaster <laughs> Ted not, a not a disaster <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, i i don't want to start like reviewing it because obviously i've already done that on the blog Although to refresh my memory given that it was like four months ago or something. Uh, where is the article about it? Tape is avocets. Oh, there it is. Oh my god, it's a long way back. It's a long way back. Yeah, because we had so we had this. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna look at the pictures and see what the pictures tell me. So there's people on stage having like a discussion about bird evolution. That was good. Banners. There was a paleo art event which was run as a parallel session. Mm. Now, and that featured a bunch of paleo-arty types talking about art and the history of paleo art and such, and then some sort of interactive event where people actually created artwork in a novel That's style. Right.
1: Um, so previous um, paleo art workshops have been uh, more structured. So there was a certain thing we were doing and everyone did it. Partly because, you know, the, in our one-day event, the Paleo Workshop really couldn't be much more than... The, well, generally we allow an hour for it, something like that. Whereas this was pretty much a whole afternoon, so we could be much freer. So we had some talks, which we haven't had before, and um, from Mark Witten, and Lewis Ray. Lewis
0: Ray, Mark Witten. Uh, and then
1: we had some discussion. But <clears throat> meanwhile... While we were doing this, everyone could draw their paleo art and I brought in a whole heap of um, uh, art supplies because I wanted it to feel like you could choose what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it because what I want to do is explore Mm. different styles in paleo art. So I got people to do work in styles that they didn't normally work in and try out Mm. different different things. And it was really surprising how good (laughs) everyone was. (laughs) You know, uh, when we discussed this, people don't realise, people come to Paleo Art Workshop, I mean, it was half the people at Ted It's not like they're all professional artists or even hobbyists necessarily. But, you know, you give people some art supplies and something to draw and ask them to do it, and nearly everyone's really good. I was really impressed. It It was a lot of fun, and we got a lot of really cool artwork out of it. Um, people said they enjoyed the more freeform aspect of it and also the extra time. Um, so I thought it Mm -hmm. it went really well. I was a little worried about it not having a specific task and would people just sit there thinking, what are we all doing here? What's the point? (laughs) But it didn't go down like that at all. Um, it also let people, if they wanted to, uh, get up and go to particular talks, um, so, you know, we could <clears throat> accommodate people not being there for the whole time, which was, which was good as well. Yeah, so Paleo Workshop, pretty, pretty successful. It was success. yeah. you're happy with it. Um, what I didn't like about it, but this is true of a lot of Tetsu cons for me, is that I missed a whole bunch of talks. So <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: But then I miss a lot of talks anyway, so there you go.
0: So, so that is that is the main issue with having it as a parallel stream. Do we want to like, do we want that, or do we well, want to not? The,
1: my reasoning for that? splitting it out as a parallel stream. I n- I've never liked parallel streams in, um, in conferences, because I think it's a good idea mm-hmm. to have everyone doing the same thing so that everyone can <clears> discuss <throat> it. Right, you know, because a good thing about mm-hmm. a conference mm-hmm. is talking to people you might not normally talk to, meeting new people, mm-hmm. and if everyone's seen the same stuff, it's um. God, that's distracting. <laughs> I just have to stop looking. Oh. During these selfies during the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Carry on. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I've always, like, preferred the idea of a single stream conference um, uh, or convention so that everyone everyone's on the same page. everyone shared the same experience, basically, and can talk about it. But the Paleo Art Workshop was getting way too big to control. You know, now we've got 160 people that come to TetsuCon. It's too difficult to get a Paleo Art Workshop that actually works with that number of people. So I kind of had to... Right. I think we had to reduce the number of people that came. Um, Unless we do something really Mm. quite different, but I couldn't imagine what that was. And so I I don't know how we could ever reintegrate it. Um,
0: yeah, because I'm sad to have missed the paid-out workshop because obviously I was in charge of the mm. talks occurring at the same time. So I kind of, I kind of don't want it to happen <laughs> again. But on the other, hand, but on the other, I, I mean, I don't want it to happen mm. as a parallel thing. But on the other hand, I obviously agree with your take on that. So I don't know, I don't know what yeah, to do there. It's a bit of a shame because I, um, I
1: also like the idea that this, you know, Ted comes a lot about uh, people. Experiencing and hearing about things they might not normally hear about, you know, a bit of uh, mm. what's the word, uh, <clears throat> you know, getting outside your field and letting yeah. people choose is actually a little bit against that, um, isn't it? You know, paleo art sort of people come to yeah. the paleo art workshop, and people who don't don't think they're interested won't, but maybe they are. And previously, we would have <laughs> forced them, <clears throat> force them to be interested. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um but I, I don't I don't see any way around that. Because we just don't we don't really have enough um, room anywhere to do it. Um, that's become a problem. Uh, and also we rely on people volunteering to help out with the Paleo Art Workshop, which I, you know, feel bad about <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> and but I, I want people to. to be able to talk to <laughs> paleo artists, no. you know. During the workshop, and if we go to 160 people and we've got, like, four paleo artists there, you just won't get to talk to, your, to the artist very much at all, maybe a few sentences. <clears throat> it's much better if you can actually have a conversation. Um, and so, Yeah. Yeah. It's typical, like, class size, isn't it? It's basically a class, isn't it? Yeah. You, know, you, can't have a, you can't have a classroom of 160 people.
0: It doesn't work. The paleo art workshop was not filmed no was it so i think if we do have these um, parallel streams we must film the, one of them so that that it can be enjoyed by those yeah, it not there make
1: sense to film to, the paleo workshop at least not the way it was um, no maybe that maybe the talks, well, the, talks yeah. the talks at least um, but yeah even the talks were more interactive than you would get in the main
0: <laughs> um, thing. Anyway,
1: yes. So other yeah, things. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, I sh- yeah, uh, we should say that w- it being late January 2019, we ha- we we are in the very earliest stages of talking about the Tetsugon for this year. So uh, we've got all this to sort out. <laughs> um. Yeah, so Paleo oil shop that was great. Um, like I said, I don't want to start talking about the talks because I, I know I'll be unable to avoid talking about each one of them for a long time. But we had several book signings, Lucy Cook, Katrina von Greil, uh Ian Redmond, um, Aaron Ra, uh, Marco Shea, um, Albert Chen, Hanukkah Meyer, Hanukkah Meyer, mm-hmm. Glenn Young, Ducks, Oh a speculative biology on stage discussion Gert van Dijk of Furaha and Dougal Dixon who was there with the new edition of Afterman which we've discussed we did, we did it I think like episode 69 of the podcast was a spec bio uh-huh. special uh loads of prizes for the quiz well on Albert Chen who won <laughs> quiz and there was a field trip afterwards bear in mind this was two days a lot of stuff loads of stuff i'm not mentioning field trip the the next day to crystal palace so yeah it was it was a it was a big deal and i came back with loads of art loads of books a general feeling of well-being and and satisfaction uh (laughs) no money though (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay so Tet Zucon, that's zeacon 2018 thanks to everyone who made it happen and uh, we hope that this year's event will be i wouldn't say better but at least as good because <laughs> that was like i say that was the turning point and that felt like wow we, we pulled that one off for it for at least the next several years is going to be as good as that one so i mentioned crystal palace there um, I've written on Tetra already a couple of times about the Crystal Palace models, and apologies to those of you familiar with this stuff or who've read those articles. But last year, uh, the friends of Crystal, the friends of the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, worked really hard to raise a lot of money to um, basically begin a renovation project on the Crystal Palace dinosaur models. Uh, and, their, and their first stage in this process is to build a bridge, which allow a physical, literal bridge, which allows permanent access to the islands on which the models are because believe it or not at the moment they're uh surrounded by water although much of that water is silted up and full of plants but they're surrounded by water so if you want to actually get to them to uh, evaluate them or renovate them or work on them or tidy the grounds whatever first of all you have to construct a temporary bridge which has cost a lot of money um, they need permanent access, so their first step is to, to. So they wanted to raise. They wanted this money to build a bridge. Well, how much does it cost to raise a bridge? Hundred pounds? Nah. Thousand pounds? Nah. Ten thousand pounds? No. It costs tens of thousands of pounds to make a permanent bridge. I think thirty thousand pounds is how much it requires to make a, a small permanent bridge. So, um, cut a very long story short, they did succeed in raising this money. The mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, put forward like thirty thousand pounds or something impressive and then through um uh, crowdfunding and lots of you know begging and reminding people how important this is and help from uh, everyone's favorite guitarist slash of Guns N' Roses not kidding uh, uh, this will be familiar to those of you familiar with this uh, yes the money was raised so they have succeeded in uh, building that bridge hmm. which uh, is interesting uh Crystal Palace models are you know really uh, really important uh, really interesting if if you – I hate using the word interesting a lot, but they're really interesting if you're interested in the history of paleo art, depictions of prehistoric life, all that yeah. kind of stuff. So, um,
1: Yeah, they're also, I think, artistically interesting. Uh, they're really um, – in terms of scientific art, but also – just sort of general depictions of animals and naturalism and that sort of stuff, They're because they're really nicely done. They're really well-made models by someone that knew, really knew what they were doing. Um, Benjamin Flickens. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're significant in many ways. And a, a lot of the older stuff about them is like laughing at how ridiculous they are, and it's just so unfortunate because they're not ridiculous. They're really pretty interesting and really nice.
0: My, my main contention here, and again, I've written about it several times on Tetrapods Audio. If you're interested, go and find the Tetrapods Audio articles on Crystal Palace. My main contention is that, okay, their visions of the animal, animals appropriate for the time, appropriate for the early 1850s, imagined in terms of what they knew at that time, which is what you obviously have to do. You can't laugh at people for not knowing stuff that was discovered afterwards. Um, they are better than the vast majority of modern depictions of prehistoric animals. Mm. So like you look at depictions of prehistoric animals done in 2010 or 2015 or 2000 or 1990, the depictions of 1990 or 2000 are not as good both artistically and in terms of level of technical accuracy. They're not as good as the Crystal Palace models are and that really needs to be appreciated particularly when the people that often criticize the crystal palace models are paleontologists and when you look at like the books written by the exact same paleontologists <laughs> from 1990 or 2000 2010 it's like yeah are you doing as good a job in 1990 or 2000 or 2015 or 2010 or whatever no you're not it's like you your depictions of prehistoric animals <laughs> are way out according to the knowledge yes. of the time and yet crystal palace animals were not they were like bleeding edge like up to the second, well, not up to the second, but up to the minute in terms of what they thought was correct at the time. So that's a, non, a non-trivial observation and I hope people understand my point and agree with me there. <clears throat> you know what I'm talking about. Um, ZSL book events. Uh, ZSL book event. What the bloody hell is that about? So at the Zoological Society of London, Danny Rabioti um, re- uh, led... A, an event called from something like from stone sloths to farting fish and uh, humour in zoological publishing I can't find any information on it and it's such a long time I've, I've forgotten all the details but it was basically Danny Rabioti talking about her books Does It Fart and the newer <laughs> True or Poo Lucy Kirk talking about the um, Unexpected Truth About Animals Or The Truth About Animals has got two alternative titles. She spoke about that book and uh, did a signing at Tezukon. Jules Howard, who is the author of Sex on Earth, Death on Earth. And then there was that Darren Nash guy talking about dinosaurs. And my talk was mostly about what people have said on the reproductive biology of dinosaurs, if you know (laughs) what I'm saying. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Loads of yeah, nudge, wink, wink. uh, it went pretty well i haven't yeah I, 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 you no, you I weren't there right which i made loads of jokes uh-huh. at your expense and you know I was trying to shame you constantly like where is john conway where is he He's meant to be here no you weren't there in the audience so so that was wasted but uh it's been recorded and uh, danny at some point i'm sure we'll actually get around to sending the uh, uh recordings no no pr- no pressure danny it's only been several months <laughs> um uh, but it was good fun, really good. <clears throat> ARC BHS meeting, yeah, that's some herpetology meeting that happened in December in the UK. Uh, I love herpetology meetings. And I don't want to talk about it now because again, don't know why I wrote it down. Pop Paleo, Pop Paleo, that was in December. Popularizing paleontology conference, that was good. Yeah. Can you think of anything interesting to say about it?
1: Um, probably not that we haven't said before about Pop Paleo. I can yeah, so just sort of um Pop Paleo is an interdisciplinarian interdisciplinary (laughs) Interdisciplinary uh workshop. (laughs) So you get people coming from really different backgrounds talking about paleontology and what it means in society. Um and as as always you end up with um Interesting things coming up. A lot of the time, you'll be sitting there and think, I have no idea what this person is talking about. I don't understand what they're saying. I don't understand where they're coming from. I understand the words, but I don't understand how they fit Mm. together and what context they're using them in. And that's how often you start with talks. And... um. Well this cut you know if you especially on the sciencey side and you have literary criticism and that sort of thing and you don't understand what they're talking oh, okay. about. But what I like about it is that it's it's very small and you gener and you nearly always have a chance to talk to the people about what they were saying afterwards. And okay. I often find that actually they were saying something quite interesting I just didn't understand it because of the well often the jargon in fields it's it's difficult to understand especially when it sounds like normal words but they actually have special meanings <laughs> right and they um, I yeah. think I know what you're saying
0: and so i i i have to say i i i do understand where you're coming from but i don't feel that way because it's always obvious to me that if someone is approaching something from the perspective of literary or artistic criticism or from the point of view of like an archaeological community or historical community, then you know, you know, they're taking us like with n- not meaning any disrespect to such people, but they're often taking a somewhat more, you know, humanities based kind of flowery, uh, human led take on what do we feel about dinosaurs? <laughs> Where do they fit within our sure, psyche? Sure, they are, and it's like, but
1: they also use <clears throat> words that are much more precise than you think they are, right?
0: So, some, I'm, I'm wondering now if yeah, I'm missing I think that. you are.
1: Because often the words mean something much more specific. They are jargon <laughs> words.
0: Like, give ghosts. me an example then. I know what that is. White <laughs> sheep exactly. goes exactly. woo, Scooby Doo. Um, oh.
1: Well, it's bit, I think it's very dependent on what context you're talking about it in. But ghosts can mean mm-hmm. something fairly specific if you're talking about cultural ghosts of animals. Um, okay. Whereas it came up in a it came up and in a discussion, a and dies. I think everyone looked at each other like, "Ooh, uh, what what do you mean ghosts? What what are you talking about here?" And my discussion mm-hmm. after with with uh, like she was wrong. Dinosaurs aren't cultural ghosts because there's no possible cultural transmission of dinosaurs, right? Non avian dinosaurs, they're too old. But there are cultural. Ghosts of animals that have been passed on—the the animal's extinct, but it's still in the culture, right? It's still in stories. It's still well, talked about.
0: In in ecology, there's a concept of ghosts, as in there's still a shadow of the in, of the impact that organism had on yes. an ecosystem.
1: So it's being used very similarly in that, like that, but in culture.
0: <clears throat> yeah. Which, would Which not wouldn't be a, be thing, a thing with dinosaurs, dinosaurs, but
1: not even understanding that that's what you were saying.
0: I don't <laughs> I remember it wasn't that talk. In
1: talk. It was actually in a comment, but, um, but I I've, mm. I found this uh, several <clears> times <throat> I when I'm talking to the people outside of the science-y sort of field that mm. a lot of the words are much much more precise, and you get much more of a feeling of the structure of their argument than you would because it comes across as very flowery to us because they're using yeah. words like ghosts and things like this and we don't understand them and we just sort of think it's maybe in the ordinary sense and it's not and so yeah I, I find this interesting I, I do I, yeah I, I think it is interesting talking to people from different fields and realising what the structure of their arguments are and also, and sometimes yeah. they're saying well, interesting things uh, not always
0: yeah they're allowed to have their own yeah. jargon uh, so maybe the assumption is that yeah like you shouldn't assume people from a different discipline know your jargon.
1: Yeah, but, uh, I think in, I, I, I mean, I,
0: I don't know. We're talking about people that are assuming, I mean, because if you, if, if I stand up in front of a, an audience that includes art historians and archeologists, et cetera, I don't say synapomorphy or phylogeny randomly. I'll sort of say, you know, key feature or, or family tree or, you know, there'll be a caveat. Yeah,
1: but I think we can um, slip into, especially with the ordinary words that has, like, words that have become much more restricted. I wish I could think of some examples because there are lots of them, but mm-hmm. just normal words that become much more precise and that's how they're jargonized. I think we get okay. up and and say things like that <clears throat> without thinking if we're involved in paleontology. Yeah. I think you avoid big long words that are obviously jargon, synapomorphy, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think some of the like the precisifying of words becomes a bit lost and you and you don't Precisify. and you don't realize you're doing it. Yeah. Right. Um
0: good yeah. good wording, that. <laughs> good wording <Yeah>. also. <laughs> Uh, how do we? How can we jog this? Oh, okay. So one interesting
1: <laughs> discussion that comes up again and again in pop paleo is what's the point of paleontology? And so you did a panel with Mark Whitten, Elsa Panzeroli and Becky Ragsikes um, about what is the point of paleontology? And it um, it was interesting because it was incredibly difficult to answer. I think, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> we probably discussed this on the podcast. Quite a bit, but um, this is what I think. One of the central questions that this workshop tries to deal with: what What's the point of doing palaeontology? What's the point of telling people about palaeontology? And that discussion is always pretty interesting. That was a um, that was a public engagement uh, section, so people could come along and ask questions. And they were forced to ask questions, yeah. which I actually think was Ugh. all right. You hated it, but otherwise, you get the same questions from the same people. <laughs>
0: Uh, I, have, I have no problem, no, no problem with the go- the goading of the, the 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 questions. That that was fine. It's just some of the some of the people who, oh dear, just some of the opinions that you get from. I don't know. We've probably we've probably covered this on the podcast before. Uh, there's there's a certain class of people, a certain group of people, and for some reason they always tend to be. Old, angry, white dudes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah, no. no what were you I thinking?
1: No, I'm you asked. can't. You can't leave that dangling. What, so, what okay, specific thing okay. was worrying you there, or what, what thing?
0: There's a there's a specific style of uh <clears throat> specific style of um sort of negativity or skepticism. Directed towards anything to do with scientific endeavor, environmentalism, um, which is basically like yeah but what 's the point aren 't you missing this and I just see that as not the bane of my life but a very common thing that always comes from the same kind of person and i had and I had that, and I was and it was actually mostly in the uh, like, what do you call the sort of wander around bit afterwards? We walk around with a glass of wine and look at paintings, part of a thing, the evening. That's that part, that sort of part of the evening. It's like you have this person comes up to you and wants to talk to you about how they've discovered that climate change is not actually happening. <laughs> uh, and- <laughs> oh.
1: See, I find that funny because, um, uh, you know, it's a little bit. This is a bit strange going to this, but it's a little bit Holocaust Nazi neo Nazis going to Holocaust denial, right?
0: But yes. Don't you yes. think
1: that the Holocaust was a good thing, Mister Neo Nazi? Isn't that sort of what you're arguing? Oh yeah, but it didn't happen. Uh you know, and I think that it's really interesting that you get um, people who are skeptical of the very purpose of environmentalism, still feeling like they have to argue about specific facts like climate change. Because they can totally Mm -hmm. just say, yeah, it's happening, who cares, right? You know, maybe we'll be better off. This arguments in that direction. And so, Mm -hmm. but it is interesting that it always, these clumps of ideas that come together like this and they're quite annoying, yeah. People who feel like they have to argue with... Yeah. The other side's facts even though it's not relevant to their argument right they just
0: okay. yeah yeah it's kind of annoying and and it does tend to be the same set of ideas that sort of all yes. cluster together I, I don't know if we've touched on this before and it's, and it's not really relevant to what we're talking about but um and it didn't thank you be wrong i'm not talking about this because it ruined the evening it was it was it was good mm. it was a good thing so all right well that was a bit of a so, Pop Paleo, um, Mark Whitton's talk, I suppose we have to talk about him, because he gave, he spoke broadly about the uh, monsterization of prehistoric animals, which is very relevant to our interests. And so, uh, I have a copy here of the Paleo Artist Handbook, Recreating Prehistoric Animals in Art, Mark's new book. And um, it's really good, and it's one of the most important books ever written on the subject of paleo art and... Everything to do with depicting prehistoric mm-hmm. animals in, in life. So you should really get that if you're a listener of this podcast. It costs £22 Pog. in British money, which is a good price. The Paleo Artist Handbook. I probably need to write about it on Tetsu at some point, but there's a long list of books I need to write about. I'm slowly working my way through it. So Yeah, loads of good stuff in there. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I'm sure I had something else interesting to say, but I've forgotten it now. So, Pop Paleo, there's two Pop Paleo meetings every year, I think. Back to the agenda. Darren in China! So, uh, I've spent weeks in Sichuan province in China working on a project which I'm not allowed to talk about. It involves dinosaurs, I'll say that. And while there, Sichuan is where Zigong is, Zigong home to the Zigong Dinosaur Museum and the famous Jurassic Dinosaurs. And that was incredible. Really blown away by seeing those things in person. Lots of interesting adventures in in China, like being unable to get back to where my hotel was and uh, having a totally broken sleep schedule and struggling with the few Chinese words I know. I know about six Chinese words, possibly seven. And making friends with stray dogs, which is generally advised against, but worked mm-hmm. out all right. And seeing lots of wildlife, visiting giant pandas at the panda base, that was all good fun. So it's quite it was, it was overall a positive experience. And uh, I was a bit depressed when I was in China, because some of the cities I went to really did feel like wildlife deserts, like lots of pollution stuff. I thought, oh God, it really is as bad as you think it is. Mm. It's like... It's it's it's, it's, it's Earth of the <laughs> Matrix, um, as in like when they visit the real world, it's sort of like this desolate hellscape. Yeah. <laughs> no, no offense, China. But it turns out it's actually not that bad. There are even some animals, wild animals living even in the cities. And there's obviously in some places a real push to um, uh, make places – as green as they can be this you see people like you know growing trees on the tops of buildings and you know lots of planting at the sides of roads and everything so there is evidence for some pace of destruction you see lots of forests being cut down where i was in Sichuan, but um how was the food yeah it was spicy is the answer Sichuan is obviously china so big and it's foods many different kinds but uh yeah i like spicy food and just as well because i would have <laughs> starved otherwise so uh Yeah, the weirdest thing for me was breakfast, where every breakfast, I don't, I'm not really a breakfast person, I often don't have breakfast at all, and if I do have breakfast, I'll want something like cereal, or fruit, or yogurt, or something like that, but they had in the hotel i was staying i don't know how typical this is for china china in general but they had this gargantuan buffet spread of everything you know bowls and noodles and soups and sliced meats and everything just like you would expect for a big evening meal and, and and i just was taking like a few slices of, of melon and a couple of yogurts and some sweet bread and uh and the staff would always come up to me and do you need knife and fork because you don't know how to use chopsticks or do you want do you want some bread because you're english and i was like no i just don't want thank you very much but i just don't want that sort of food first thing in the morning so Sorry, uh but otherwise otherwise very happy yeah i mean i ate tons and um oh my god yeah i was i was given meals so big that uh i was sort of falling asleep in the evening so i wasn't having evening meals because i slept from like 7 p.m until one in the morning so i'd miss it but uh yep all good it was all interesting and, um, yeah, and the dinosaur stuff that I've been involved in. So I'll show you next time I see yeah, it. You can't really talk about
1: that, though, so.
0: and, No, I can't talk about it. There's a lot of dinosaur themed stuff I'm involved in at the moment that I can't talk about. I'm doing a couple of like big media projects uh, for TV companies and uh, scientific stuff. I was just looking, I spent yesterday on the Isle of Wight looking at interesting new dinosaur sciencey fossils things. And oh my god, oh my god, that's a big story there.
1: (laughs) Well, that's great podcasting there.
0: Okay, so briefly, the section of the show called uh, "What's New at Tetsu, which could be part of news from the world of news or news from the world of Darren and John. And obviously, I've already written, I've already said about some stuff that's on Tetrapod Zoology, like the Crystal Palace stuff this is just a reminder to our listeners, because there's got to be some listeners that don't read the blog. Mm-hmm. I don't know, one or two. Um, did you read, because I know you don't really look at the blog too lazy. Did you read this, the article called um, Heilman, Thompson, Beeb, tricks and no. the Proavian? Okay. Well, you should, because right. you'll like it. It's it's all about the idea of, so, uh, f- f- during most of the 20th century, there was this idea that before animals like Archaeopteryx evolved, and Archaeopteryx, you know, obviously sort of ancestral in the looser sense, ancestral to, you know, birds, obviously. The idea was that <clears throat> before that kind of animal evolved, there must have been sort of proto-Archaeopteryx type creatures. And what did people think they were like before they really fully agreed that birds... Are dinosaurs what sort of animals did they imagine and starting from the early 1900s you've got a bunch of people coming up with these creatures they called pro avians pro or uh, some variation thereof and in particular i was interested in gerard heilman's um, concept of the proavian and whether it was linked to like how he how he came up with this concept of the pro how he actually did it because it turns out that most people I'm repeating what I say in the article here and I said I wouldn't talk about it at length but now I feel like I can't finish um, most people know that Heilman came up with this proavian creature because it's illustrated in his famous 1924 book The Origin of Birds but that's the English edition and the English edition doesn't include all the stuff that he published in the preceding uh, Dutch edition edi- version of the book and also there's this bunch of papers he published where he explained how he came up with the um, you know the, the look of the the creature and it turns out that that uh, Heilman corresponded extensively with Darcy Thompson Darcy Thompson was the the most famous person as goes basically analysis of shape and change in shape across evolutionary history, how you can apply mathematical principles of geometry to evolution. And Darcy Thompson did this famous book in nineteen I'm going to say 1917, called On Growth and Form, um, in which he discussed his ideas about... Transformation grids or Cartesian grids, where you basically draw a grid over an organism and then you say, Well, we know this happened in the evolutionary history of the organism. Let's say that, you know, birds evolved longer forelimbs. So that means that if you imagine the grid, well, then the modification happened in this part mm-hmm. of the grid. And he sort of tried to show how just by imagining modification happening in a certain part of like to what we today might call morphospace so it happened in this part and didn't happen in this part and drew all these grids and showed how like these cartesian transformations explain evolution and that it did happen according to basic geometric processes well holman thought that was really cool and probably true and did loads and loads of his own Darcy Thompson Cartesian transformation grids pertaining to the evolution of birds. So he took like animals like Archaeopteryx, he took animals like Euparcheria and Ornithosuchus and Aetosaurus, which was sort of imagined as like, you know, uh, the ancestors of birds. And then he did the Cartesian grid thing and he came up and he said, like, this is how the forelimb became modified into the wing, this is how the skull became modified into the skull of Archaeopteryx. And to piece together all of his writings and illustrations of these grids, piece them all together, that is how he invented his proavian. He didn't just right. imagine some animal that was an intermediate between animals like Euparchyria, which are stem archosaurs. He didn't imagine animal intermediate between animals like that and animals like Archaeopteryx. He actually used this Cartesian grid technique to actually come up with what is technically a repeatable quantitative
1: Hmm.
0: way of devising the creature which is really interesting because when we we've discussed this before when you think about how people invent prototypes intermediate animals in evolution you know the animals that aren't known in the fossil record they've generally just done it by intuition they've generally i think i think the ancestors of bats probably looked a bit like this i think the ancestors of humans You know, an animal between chimpanzee-type animals and humans-type animals probably looks something like this. They haven't used, like, numbers and proportions and ratios and, you know, mathematical grid. And he did. And this is really interesting, I think. And yet it's not well known because none of it was – bizarrely, none of it was included in the 1924 English edition of his book, which is weird and his book was very well received. A big part of the Gerard Hyman story. Here I have an edition of 1924, "The Origin of Birds," a fantastic, it's a beautiful book. Have you ever seen a copy? Uh,
1: no, actually.
0: To check this out, look at look look at look at this. Look how good it is. Look, it's really it's loads and loads mm. of amazing, um, beautiful drawings. Loads of like you know yeah. famous life reconstructions here of prehistoric animals. The book was. In the English-speaking world, universally re- well received, and um, and it was regarded as like the definitive word on the subject of look at the Huatzeen chick there. Mm. Um, every, everyone assumed this guy was you know top of the game. Is that is that a thing people sure, say top not? of the game? <laughs> <laughs> they they thought this is the last word on bird origins, and as a consequence, this was the sort of official textbook dogma. Uh, from 1924 until John Ostrom's work in the late 1960s. So it was well-received, but ironically, it didn't include this, you know, mathematic Cartesian grid-type stuff, which, if it was included, I think would have made it look even more technical and even more convincing. It's like, holy crap, this guy doesn't just, like, draw things and look at embryos. He's also done loads of maths. (laughs) (laughs) He's got to be right. I don't
1: understand it properly.
0: He's got to be right. (laughs) Yeah. He's... His creature, his intermediate creature is actually derived via the principles of geometry and mathematics. Surely that would have been even more impressive. I don't know why it wasn't included, but it wasn't. So there you go. So that's what my article is. And it invites loads of other questions, loads of spin offs, loads of like other things that are worth exploring. And I will do those. I will write more about the connected subjects later on in the year. So, um. There was a lot of interest in that. I think people quite liked that article, and I'm surprised you haven't read it. Shame, shame on you, shame. Conway. Shame. Mm. You're the worst. You really are. So then, that was, my, that was my first article for 2019. Obviously, me being away and super busy and swamped, basically, in drowning in work. I've only published one other article, which is the life appearance of sauropod dinosaurs. And I thought, well, people seem to quite like this whole, like, how do we reset the life appearance of prehistoric animals thing? And, um combined, if you combine that with my frustration, as goes the fact that a lot of the science blogs articles, that's tetrapodology version two, they're still online, but they are now appearing without any of their images. So there's loads of articles there about what we know about the life appearance of extinct dinosaurs, including sauropods the articles don't have their pictures with them all the pictures are missing which makes them utterly yeah. useless so i thought i've got to like try and get some of this online because it's really useful for me from a purely selfish point of view it's really useful for me to just tell like i work a lot with artists and designers i say just go and read this article so you can understand what sauropod hands look like for example i thing that everyone always gets wrong not everyone yeah. but a lot of people get it wrong. Uh it's good for me to have this as a resource online and also like I say you know this is popular and people like it and it invites discussion which I learn from and benefit from. So yeah I chucked in loads of stuff on sauropod life appearance it discusses shrink wrapping, the soft dinosaur revolution, all yesterdays what we know about sauropod tracks, hands, feet, faces, noses, um shapes of bodies, etc etc etc. Skin sauropod skin is a fascinating subject. So um yeah, chucked it all in there together. Really mm. long article. And a big peek on the graph as a result, which shows that people love it and have been reading it a lot. So,
1: Yeah, people like dinosaurs too, don't they?
0: People seem to like yeah. dinosaurs. Something about them. I don't think it's a mystery. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, right. And we're going to wrap it up there. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I let's wrap so. it up. All right so um thanks for listening listen to the next one and if you haven't listened to the previous ones go and listen to them as well except not the early ones because they're pretty bad um who are you and what do you do and where are you on the internet or do i do do first? first do i do i do first okay so my name is darren nash I blog at Tetrapods currently hosted at tetzoo.com. If you're interested in the stuff I do and want me to do more of it, then please consider supporting me at Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash tetzoo. Uh, I'm a million miles away from being able to sit back and pluck grapes for a living and lie on a chaise long and do no work. So any help there would be appreciated. That is my ultimate endeavour. Um, no, I, I, I'm kind of joking. I would like to be more productive is what I'm trying to say, but here I am working my self death like an idiot, like a slave monkey.
1: <laughs> slave monkey at a thousand typewriters. Slave monkey. It was the blurst of tweet. times. You stupid monkey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, if I can get a word in. I tweet lacklustre star wars once again i tweet at sir i don't know where your ship learned to communicate but it has the most peculiar dialect i believe sir it says that the power coupling on the negative axis isn't polarized i'm afraid you have to replace it well of course i'll have to replace it here and chewy i think you better replace the negative power
1: <laughs> coupling. at Tetsu, it's getting longer and longer you're <laughs> gonna be like um you're gonna read out the whole script by the time stanza (laughs) Uh uh-huh is that it that's you yeah okay all right uh i'm john conway uh i'm junior vice president at johnconway.co and you can find me on twitter at the john conway where you can find links to my patreon and things
0: yeah that's it (sighs) all right ladies bye